0: You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host Rochelle. Today we will be discussing 13 minutes. Hello, welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. So, I was reading online the other day, and it was an article, and it said that only 20% of podcasts make it to their 100th episode. So, that has officially become my new goal to reach 100 episodes. Since I'm only at episode five, the thought is a little bit daunting, but I appreciate you guys being here and being up for the ride. I know that I can do this with your continued support, and honestly, who am I kidding? I'm never going to get tired of reading and researching true crime, so we got this. If you've been here for a while and you haven't already, I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll never miss a single episode ever. If you want to, you can also leave a review so that other people who love true crime just as much as we all do can find us. Also, please join us on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved and engage in our discussions. I really love to know what your thoughts are and your input are regarding each case. I gained so many ideas and perspectives from all of you. In regards to the comments we received last week, I agree with many of you that there has to be someone who saw or heard something when it comes to Ray Rivera. Someone must have had to see something. Maybe they don't realize like how important it is what they saw, but there's no way that he could have just done what he did and without anybody seeing him during that time. I hope that one day someone will come forward. Also, just so you guys know, that episode was so difficult for me to write. The story is just all over the place. The details don't add up and you can't really tell what's important information and what are the red herrings. So hopefully I did an all right job presenting it because that episode really gave me a run for my money. I'm not going to lie. There is somewhat of an update on the Alonzo Brooks case, which we delved through at length in the second episode of this podcast. I read from dailymail.co.uk um, just a heads up, the new autopsy report, I, I've been looking it up. It has not been made public, so it's nothing regarding the autopsy. But it's more just information from the episode that isn't sitting well with the people that were close to Alonzo. So apparently Rodney English, one of Alonzo's friends and Alonzo's mom are saying that Justin's story has changed six times since the death of Alonzo. And if you don't remember who Justin is, Justin is the friend that took Alonzo to the party. And then he was supposed to take Alonzo back home, but his car broke down. Um, but They're saying that his story has changed six times since Alonzo's disappearance. They say at first his car broke down and he was driving by himself. Then he got lost, but he was with a different friend. Then his car went into a ditch because he had been drinking and he didn't want to call the police because he was about to begin a career in the military. Apparently Daniel, another friend, claims that Justin had started drinking at noon that day. And I think I remember telling you guys that Justin's details of the night in question have always been a bit fuzzy. Um, I remember that he said that there was a long driveway, which we know from the pictures that it wasn't a long driveway. He said that there was a creek that ran alongside of that driveway when the creek actually ran alongside the back of the house and was nowhere near the driveway. But Justin has apparently been receiving death threats since the release of this episode. Yikes. Which come on. If he's guilty, it will come to the light. We don't need to threaten people. We just need people to get justice. Another piece of the puzzle is that um, all of the kids in the documentary that were interviewed, I mean, I guess they're not kids anymore. If they're grown men, but all of the people that were interviewed in the episode said that there were only about 50 to 100 people at the party. But in fact, I read from a different article um, by the KBI that there were about 200 kids in attendance that night. Um, I read in that article that most of the kids at the party were not from Lacine at all, but were also from out of town like Alonzo and all of his friends. It was apparently a well-known spot for underage drinking and they held parties pretty frequently there. It is the posture of the KBI that it was most likely... Not someone from Lacine itself who has anything to do with Alonzo's disappearance, but someone from out of town who was just there to party. There is a kid, who is now a man, who never lived in Lacine but was there that night. He is of significant interest to the investigators involved. However, he lawyered up fairly quickly after the discovery of Alonzo's body and there just wasn't enough evidence to get a warrant to question him, so until they get more evidence or unless he wants to go and talk to the police there's really nothing that they can do at this point my guess is that even when the second autopsy is conducted we're probably not going to know the findings of that autopsy at least not right away but I will keep my eyes open and my ears open and I'll continue to search for more updates on this and all of the previous cases that we've talked about Also, a little update about Ray Rivera's case is that apparently while Ray's computer was in police custody, um, there was a caller. Someone attempted several times to contact them and ask them, what's the status of the computer? Is the computer ready to be picked up? Have you guys been able to find anything on the computer? And whenever the police would ask for the person's name, they would just hang up. But isn't that pretty unusual? Huh, if only the police had a way to trace people's calls. Hmm. (laughs) Seriously. Anyway, before we begin today's episode, I want to cite my sources. Obviously a lot of my information comes from the episode itself, but as always, I did some of my own research. I used articles from bustle.com, Reddit.com, Wikipedia abcnews.com and abc.com. And abc.com is the source that I found the information about Alonzo Brooks case. So just so you know, uh, this episode is called 13 minutes. The way this episode begins is actually really artistic and beautiful. There is this sort of distorted tick tock, tick tock, TikTok that is just seriously, you guys have to like watch that episode if only for that because it is spine chilling. We see a man sitting at a table. We find out that his name is Pistol, and we later discover that he is Patrice's only child. Pistol says it just doesn't make sense. She never mentioned anything about leaving. There were no signs of a struggle at the scene. There was nothing at her hair salon that was out of place. It was like she just walked out of her front door and kept walking. On-screen text reads April 15th, 2004. And if you guys don't think that I've noticed the pattern of these episodes, you would be mistaken. If you guys haven't noticed, a lot of the episodes that we've been discussing happened in April, like the disappearances. So, um, I think we've done five cases so far and only one of them didn't take place in April, so... Uh, be careful in April guys. Uh, This particular case takes us to Cumming, Georgia. Pistol Black says that he was in the 10th grade when his mother disappeared, which I just need to get this out of the way. But at the same time, it deserves our full attention. Pistol Black is by far one of the coolest names that I've ever heard. It sounds like the name of a vigilante in some sort of like Netflix show or a comic book or cartoon. Um, Pistol is also pretty good looking. Am I right or am I right or am I right? (laughs) I'm going to post a pic on the Instagram, of course, but I felt like it needed to be said before we could go on any further. So there, I said it. He says during the last morning with his mother, she had woken him up the same way that she always did. She was running on the treadmill. He said that they got into a little bit of an argument because he wanted to be early for school. There was apparently a girl that he really liked. And if he got to school early, he wouldn't get the chance to talk to her before the bell ring. And do you guys remember that? I totally remember being like, I need to get to school early because there's a boy I have a crush on and I want to see. <laughs> it's just so funny to reminisce about that kind of stuff. Um, so they show a picture of Pistol when he was in the 10th grade and he looks like an absolute goober, but didn't we all in 10th grade? Well, unless we're talking about the 10th graders of today, seriously, it is so not fair that they never seem to go through an awkward phase. My awkward phase, however, lasted a very long time, basically from like age 10 to like 29. (laughs) And I am 29 right now. (laughs) His mother, Patrice, drops him off, tells him that she loves him and that she will see him in the afternoon. He says that he loves her too, and that was it. That was the last time Pistol saw or spoke to his mother. Later on in the day, Pistol was escorted to the principal's office by a resource officer. The principal asks if he's spoken to his mom since she uh, dropped him off at school. Pistol says, no, I haven't. They ask, do you know of any way that we could get a hold of her? So Pistol calls his mom's cell phone. The line rings and rings and rings with no answer. He says that in the past, anytime he would call his mother and she didn't answer, she would immediately call him back. It didn't matter if she was working or if she was driving or if she was at working out. Whatever it was, she would call him right back. But this time, Pistol calls her three times and she never calls him back. We learned that Patrice is a wonderfully affectionate and devoted mother. She would attend every meet and every game. Pistol was literally Patrice's whole world. She would do anything for him. Pistol recalls that for as long as he could remember, his mother had a passion for hair. She loved to make people feel beautiful. Not only was she talented in her profession, but she was also warm and loving towards her customers and honestly anyone she came in contact with. From every single person we talked to in this episode, they cannot say enough wonderful things about Patrice, and she seems like she was just a lovely, lovely lady. She was hardworking, and after some time, Patrice was able to build up a clientele and open a very successful salon on her own. Every person that we interview talks about how wonderful Patrice made them feel, which what a wonderful gift Patrice had. I mean, there's so much negativity and pessimism going around in the world today. We need people who have the gift to build others up. My husband and I always tell my daughter, she's six years old, that obviously we want her to do well in school and get good grades and whatnot. But what's most important to us is that we teach her how important it is to build people up, cheer each other on. We always say, We, in our family, we try to make sure people feel better about themselves after speaking with us and not worse. It seems like from the information that we're being given that Patrice was certainly this type of person. We learned that Patrice's husband, Pistol's stepdad, Rob, was the one who helped Patrice get her salon business up and going. Now we meet Rob. (laughs) Um... I just want to let you guys know that um, I read a lot of like updates and articles that Unsolved Mysteries releases and Rob is by far, and Unsolved Mysteries can collaborate and concur with this statement that I'm about to make. Rob is by far the most controversial person that they had on this season of Unsolved Mysteries. And if you've, Known me from the beginning of this podcast, you know that I do not curse on the show. I do not curse on this show, but I curse in real life. Let's get that straight. And believe me when I tell you, it is a struggle. When you research true crime, you will find yourself surrounded by some of the most depraved, demented, disgusting people and atrocities that can happen to people and it's hard not to swear and curse every second you read about anything and I'm going to be real cussing is my vice if you will however but for the sake of the podcast I try not to swear because I don't know how you're listening to this maybe you're with your kids or you're at work and I want to make sure that it's safe and professional Um, plus my mom is my number one fan and she doesn't like cussing so I do it for you mom However, Rob, whether he did this or not, is a piece of crap. I'm saying crap, but I think we all know what I really mean. And that's what I'm going to say about Rob for now. I have faith that you will see why I feel so strongly about Rob as this episode unfolds, I'm sure. But I just wanted to take the opportunity at the beginning to, you know, Share how I feel about Rob. <laughs> Ugh, Rob is just the freaking worst and he's so creepy. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the episode. Let me know what you think. Rob says that he was 50 and Patrice was 30 when they first met. They got married. Rob says that he was the luckiest man on the planet to have Patrice as his wife and that's something that Rob and I can agree about. She seems like a freaking awesome lady who was far too good for creepy Rob in my personal opinion. He says that Patrice was renting a chair at a salon when he stopped in and needed a haircut. She was the only one available to see him at that time and they hit it off from there. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that Rob is bald. He's bald now and he's bald in all of the flashback pictures too. I don't think it has anything to do with the case, but I thought I'd make a note because Brian pointed it out when we were watching the episode together and it made me laugh out loud. I'm not saying it's bad to be bald. I'm not bald shaming. I'm not a baldist. Hey, Pistol is bald and we all know how I feel about Pistol. Wink, wink. Sorry, Brian. But yeah, Rob is bald. So it's just, A little bit funny to me that Patrice and him met during a haircut appointment. (laughs) Uh, Through what is most likely forced tears, Rob says that the seven years he spent with Patrice were the best of his life. He says he just remembers the highlights, only the good things, all the beauty and the warmth and the love. He says the community loved Patrice. He said people who would get a service done by Patrice would stay for hours after their appointment just to spend time with her and be around her. Now we meet Kyleen Kramer, who is Patrice's older sister, I believe it's her older sister, and Anne McDonald, who was a extremely loyal client. They both confirm what we've been hearing about Patrice's character, that she had a bright aura a glow about her, and that everyone loved Patrice, and Patrice loved everyone. Anne McDonald said that she met Patrice as a walk-in client years ago, and they really hit it off as friends. Anne says that Patrice's shop was so close to her home, in fact, that every day on her way home from work, she would stop by and talk to Patrice for a few hours before going home. Anne says that she was there The night before Patrice disappeared even, she said as she was leaving, Patrice yelled, Hey, woman, are you coming back tomorrow? And Anne said, Of course, you know I am. Anne said that as she was leaving work the day of the disappearance, she called Patrice and it went straight to voicemail, which was pretty unusual. She said by the time she got to the shop, she saw that police were swarming everywhere and her heart sank. Law enforcement got a call from a client saying that they had gone to the salon for a pre-scheduled appointment and Patrice wasn't there and that they believed something was very, very wrong. Sheriff Ron Freeman said that when he arrived on the scene, he looked at the other investigators and everyone just knew something is definitely not right here. They know that the cash register was open and that all of the money was missing. However, her purse was found on the counter beside the register with her wallet and all of her things in it. It appeared she was in the process of warming up her food in the microwave. The rest of the shop seemed tidy and clean. They found no blood or overturned furniture, no drag marks, so absolutely no sign of a struggle. Sheriff Freeman remarks that there wasn't a lot of evidence that to pull them in either one direction or the other. Pistol says that law enforcement brought him to the shop, which I know was probably traumatic for him, but I think it's good that they brought him there, honestly. Oftentimes we forget to remember that while cops are dedicated to looking for clues, they don't know our loved ones the way that we do. They might miss something because they don't know Patrice the way that her son or her friends or her family do. Pistol says that while at the salon is when he officially hears from the officers that his mother is considered a missing person and he just breaks down. Pistol says he remembers thinking there's just no way she'd leave. There's just something wrong with her cell phone, but she's going to be back. I don't know why she's been gone so long, but I know that she's going to be back. Rob says that the day Patrice went missing, he was at work He said when he first heard about it, his mind wouldn't allow him to go to the worst case scenario. He felt it was probably all just a misunderstanding. However, when Rob gets down to the salon, he is told by officers that he'll need to come down to the sheriff's department to be interviewed and questioned. I also want to note that Rob is smiling the entire time he's recounting this story. Smiling certainly is not an indication of guilt, but it is an indication that Rob is a little bit of a creep fest. Rob said he understood why the officers would want to question him, because he really wants us to know that he has a degree in criminology, and then he chuckles to himself, which I find a little weird. He says, I'm Patrice's husband, and a lot of times, husbands are guilty of killing their wives, so, you know, I got to do this. Captain Bill Franco says they didn't want to say outright that there had been a kidnapping, which... I think he means to say an abduction. Grown women cannot be kidnapped, but that's a conversation for another day, Bill. But the captain acknowledges that they know they definitely have a mysterious disappearance on their hands, but at the moment, there was no evidence that a crime has been committed. To which I say, even though the money is missing from the register? I forget. Is robbery a crime? Oh, it is? I was just checking. Please continue on, Captain Franco. He says that the only thing out of place was her motor vehicle. It wasn't parked in its usual spot next to the building. It was parked across the front of the building. The captain says there were a lot of theories as to why the car would have been parked and found that way. Did Patrice move it? Did someone else come and move it? Did someone roll up and ask Patrice if she would mind giving their car a jump? Could that be an explanation for why her car was moved? They're still unsure today. Mitchell says a thorough search around the salon was conducted. The hope, of course, was that she would be found alive and that nothing sinister had happened to her. He continues that they needed to find out if her life was as happy as it seemed. They needed to discover if she was mentally stable to determine if leaving on her own volition could be a plausible theory. Nancy says they did ask her if Patrice would ever leave, and Patrice told the officers flat out, No, there is no way she would ever leave Pistol behind. Kylene, Patrice's sister, agrees that she would have never left Pistol. She says that Patrice adored and worshipped Pistol. He was her whole world. Everything she worked for and did was to make Pistol's life better. Sheriff Mitchell says these sort of cases are a jigsaw puzzle and you have to get as many pieces and as many clues of that jigsaw puzzle to get a better picture. They were able to establish a timeline of what they believed happened to Patrice that morning. They were able to ascertain through Patrice's appointment book that she had helped clients all morning long, patrice's first client pam shepherd arrives at 8:50 for her nine o'clock appointment and pam i admire your promptness if you happen to have any friends in the beauty industry then you know even being late to your appointment by five or ten minutes can completely throw off their schedule so good on you pam pam recalls that patrice seemed distracted and wasn't very attentive which was completely unlike her By 11.05, Pam had left the shop. At 11.10, Paul Cantor signs in for his haircut appointment, and he leaves the shop at around 11.27. Paul says he remembers so precisely the time that he left because he actually got a call as he was walking out of the salon, and cell phone records are later able to corroborate this. At 11.35, a customer calls Patrice to reschedule an appointment, and Patrice does answer, so they know that at 11.35, she was still at the salon. The customer does, however, recall that Patrice was a little bit short on the phone, which is pretty unusual because Patrice just loved to talk to people. Um, their call only lasted about two minutes. Based on phone records, the next call comes in around 11.50, and Patrice does not answer this phone call no one does. So we can draw the conclusion that something extremely critical happened within that 13 minute window, somewhere between 1137 and 1150. Outside of her shop around 1145, we have two witnesses independent of one another who recall seeing something going on outside of the shop. We have Tammy Fincher who says she sees Patrice's SUV parked in front of the salon as it is later found, but Tammy also sees a blue Chevy Lumina, which was pulled right in front of the door to the shop. The salon door was open Tammy Venture has an impeccable memory, by the way. She says she does recall noticing that the Lumina had the Georgia quail wildlife tag on the license plate. There's also a second witness, a male, who believes the car was in fact a Ford Taurus or maybe a Malibu. Tammy says that she remembers seeing two ladies talking in front of the Lumina, a tall, dark-haired woman and an older lady with short hair. The male witness says he believes the shorter person was actually a man, but he does acknowledge that the person did have shoulder length hair, so it's possible that it could have been a woman. Tammy says as she drives by, the people had hands on each other. She said it appeared as someone had tripped maybe, or perhaps someone was pushing someone down or helping someone up. She just remembers that it didn't look menacing at the time, but it also didn't look natural. Tammy begins to choke up as she recalls one of the detectives telling her, you do realize you may have been one of the last people to see Patrice alive. Ugh, what a terrible, terrible thought. And Tammy remembers she began to cry immediately after being told that by the officer. She says, how can I even begin to process this? Why didn't I stop my car? If I could have been the last why couldn't I have done something? Why didn't I do something? Tammy says that she has very much struggled since the day Patrice disappeared. She says that she, to this day, often cries herself to sleep just beating herself up about it. And Tammy, girl, don't blame yourself. You didn't know. For all we know, you could have gotten hurt too. The only person or persons to blame or to be held responsible here are the ones who had the sinister intentions you didn't know and I know it's got to be difficult but please don't punish yourself it is not your guilt to bear Tammy says that to her the Lumina holds a vital key to the resolution of this crime Pistol remembers searching through the woods for hours just calling out his mother's name He says he was just a few months shy of being 16 at the time, and the disappearance of his mother made him grow up extremely fast after the fact. He said he went through a lot of hard times after his mother was gone. He says he wishes he wouldn't have taken her for granted when she was there for him. Now Pistol takes us through a tour of the home he lived in while his mother was still around. He visits his old bedroom and comments how long it has been since he has been there. Pistol says it's bittersweet to be back visiting the home. He says the home is filled with many, many great memories. He recalls Christmases with his mother and how she always made sure to get him everything he had asked for. But he said it wasn't all about the gifts. He said his mother had a gift in that she always made Christmas feel special, no matter what. However, he also says that he has some bad memories of the home, too. He says he remembers he would stay in his room for hours at a time just so he wouldn't have to deal with rob he says he was eight or nine when rob and his mom got married richard tamber senior patrice's sweet and adorable dad enters the episode to tell us that while he was walking patrice down the aisle he sobbed like a little baby he says he gave her to rob and said just take care of my daughter will you Pistol said, at first, Rob was really nice. He said, at first, Rob attempted to be an involved stepdad, getting to know him, taking him to football practices, helping him with his homework. But then, somewhere along the line, Rob flipped a switch. Apparently, Rob was getting jealous of all the time and attention that Patrice was giving Pistol. He thought if Pistol was getting any attention from Patrice, that that was attention that was being taken away from him hold up, hold up, hold up. Any full grown man who is jealous of a mother's relationship with their child is messed up. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I know for a fact that it happens, but seriously, if you're the stepdad or heck, if you're even the biological father and you feel jealous of the bond between a mother and child, grow the F up. There's nothing else I can say. Again, I'm getting heated and it's really hard not to swear, but I'm trying to contain it for you guys. Pistol says that Rob started to make him feel like he wasn't good enough. He'd walk past Pistol's room and he would say some really crude things to him. Nancy, Patrice's friend, says that Rob was always hovering and seemed just really overprotective of Patrice. While she's saying this, they actually show a picture of Rob and Patrice sitting in a pumpkin patch, and Rob is low-key just grabbing Patrice's arm, like, super unnaturally. So I believe Nancy. There's nothing wrong with the picture per se. Like, Patrice doesn't seem scared or uncomfortable or anything like that, but the pose just seems a bit off to me. I'll see if I can find it online and post it, and you guys can let me know what you think. Nancy says that Rob was jealous of all the relationships Patrice had. He was jealous of Patrice's relationship to her son and even with her female friends. Kylene, Patrice's sister, and this thing she says means a lot coming from a sister. She says, Patrice was not happy. Rob and Patrice fought all the time because Rob wanted her all to himself. Pistol said he would hear them fight all the time. He says the fights were not always about him, but whenever they were about him, it was an argument that Patrice would never back down from. She always stood up and defended Pistol. Then Rob says that he and Patrice never argued because there just was no point in arguing, to which I raised the BS flag. So you mean to tell me, all of patrice's friends family and son decided to get together and collude against you but you know the truth is is that you guys never ever fought yeah right plus it's perfectly normal to constructively argue in any and all of the relationships that you have It's perfectly healthy. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Rob doubles down and says that he wasn't the one jealous, but that it was Pistol who was the jealous one. Rob says one of the biggest problems in their relationship was Pistol and how Patrice would never discipline him. Then he says, and buckle up folks, because you're not going to believe this. He says, referring to Pistol, I just didn't see any future in him when I was with Patrice. And to tell you the truth, I still don't. What? (laughs) What a jerk. Pistol said his mother had spoken with him about potentially divorcing Rob a few weeks prior to her disappearance. But Rob, of course, claims that he has no recollection of them ever talking about divorce because, you know, they never fought. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about Rob's selective memory. Rob did warn us at the start of this episode that he only remembers the good things. Only the good things, guys. He says, sometimes there were issues, but I don't remember the issues. I, I care not to remember those issues. Well, I'm sorry, Rob, but your wife is missing and we very, very much need to know about these issues and what those issues entailed because those issues might be pivotal to this case. So I really don't care if you don't care to remember the issues, Rob, they could be the key to solving this case. Pistol says the last time he was in the home that he and his mother lived in was the morning before her disappearance. Why, Pistol? Why? Because freaking Rob changed all the locks of the house only hours after Patrice's disappearance. He wouldn't let Pistol come in to get any of his things, any of his clothes, any of the pictures or photographs that were important to him, nothing at all. Rob says after Patrice went missing as a quote unquote precautionary measure, I I do believe that I changed all the locks in the house. Pistol says that he would knock on the doors and windows, but no one ever came to answer. Rob fumbles as he says he didn't want Pistol in the house because the you know, I you know, I I just didn't like him. And to be on the safe side, just go stay somewhere else and and I'll know I'm not going to have this constant uh, mental drag on me that you're here and I would have to put up with you. Excuse me? Did you just refer to the child of the woman you supposedly love as a mental drag? Oh, I'm so glad you were aware enough to protect your own emotions thoughts and boundaries in regard to the situation, Rob, did you ever for one moment realize how important it might be for Pistol to have some photos or mementos of his mother during this extremely difficult time? But from Rob's perspective, he couldn't be bothered to be sympathetic to a young son losing his mother because, you know, he just didn't like Pistol, a 15-year-old child. Completely understandable not you freaking piece of crap are you sure you didn't change the locks hours after patrice disappeared because you were wanting to dispose of evidence maybe and it would be easier without pistol being around that seems more likely and probable to me thankfully after pistol's mother's disappearance pistol got to live with his biological father because seriously can you imagine if he would have had to live with rob Ugh. But Pistol's father was also struggling. Even though Patrice and his dad had divorced, they were still good friends and had decided early on in their divorce to co-parent Pistol without the chaos and drama that can sometimes ensue during a divorce. They always made sure that Pistol knew they loved him, that he was their priority, and that they'd always be there for him as a mom and a dad who supported him even though they weren't romantically involved. I know that co-parenting that way is... Most likely easier said than done, but good on them for mutually deciding to do that and then actually carrying it out. Every morning after his mother's disappearance, Pistol said he would wake up and say, today's the day. Today's the day my mother is going to come get me and tell me, sorry, I just had to get some stuff together before we left Rob for good. Patrice's dad says every night he sits on his couch looking out the window, hoping that he'll see Patrice. Anne says that she never gave up hope. She was confident that one day she'd pick up the phone and Patrice would be on the other line or that one day she'd receive a letter with no return address, letting her know that she was safe and that she was doing okay. Unfortunately, that day never came. The sheriff returns to tell us that they've interviewed everyone who knew Patrice, which was a long list because Patrice was so well-loved. They apparently had a laundry list of suspects at the beginning, so let's go through that list together now. Gary Hilton, a current prisoner, attracted their attention from the very beginning. This guy is a cold hearted serial killer. During interrogation footage that we watched, Gary says, Once you've taken someone, you're either going to kill them or you're going to get caught. It's as simple as that. He continues, As an artist, if you're doing this, you would like to select your victims on an artistic sense. Ew! Shut up, Gary. Stop comparing what you do, the atrocities that you do, to art. You are ruining art for everyone, and you are demented. He got on police's radar after he had abducted Meredith Emerson. As she walked her dog, he kept her alive for a few days and then brutally murdered her. Law enforcement knows that Gary has been in Forsyth County, which is where Cummings, uh, Georgia, is. They don't mention when, but they do say that Gary had been pulled over for a traffic violation in Forsyth County previously. Law enforcement learns that Gary would typically call people and con them out of their money. However, he would also sometimes do that in person. And Gary made the statement one time in an interview that his favorite place to go in a town was a hair salon. He would go in and ask for money and his favorite time to do this was lunchtime. The scary thing we learn about Gary Hilton is that he doesn't need a motive to kill people and do the depraved things that he does. Gary Hilton hunts for fun, he hunts for people, and he is constantly hunting for opportunities. Apparently, they've never been able to prove that Hilton was involved, but similarly, they have no evidence to prove that he wasn't involved. Gary doesn't have an alibi accounting for where he was or what he was doing during the time before, after, or during Patrice's abduction. Another potential suspect is Jeremy Jones. Captain Paul Birch of the Mobile County Sheriff Department says Jeremy Jones had been arrested in Mobile, Alabama for murder. Law enforcement says he was easy to talk to. He loved to chat, fishing, hunting, sports. And that if you saw him on the street or were friends with him, you would just think he was a regular guy. But that Jeremy has a demon inside of him, a demon that likes to sexually abuse women. Jeremy has confessed to the murders of eight women, making him, by definition, a serial killer. Jeremy is another terrible human being in this episode. In some interview footage that we see of Jeremy, we hear him retelling a story of an experience that he had with one of the women that he abducted. He says, she said she had a family that loved her very, very much, and she started to cry, which started making me cry. Uh, Boo hoo, Jeremy, you're breaking your hearts. Tell us what happened next, you stupid piece of crap. Because without even taking a breath, he says... Oh, oh yeah. I I got her back there to an abandoned warehouse and I forced myself upon her. What a monster. Apparently when Jeremy Jones was arrested for his crimes, he, without any provocation from law enforcement said, I need to tell you about this hairdresser in Georgia. Could it have been Patrice? He says that he had met Patrice before and that when he's on dope, he doesn't have any integrity. He continues to say that when he's on dope, he can become the evilest, most cruelest individual. He's like, and I quote, heckle and Jekyll. Uh, what now? Come again? Heckle and Jekyll? I do believe you mean Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Mr. sir. Come on, Jeremy, read a book. Watch Wishbone on PBS if words are too hard. My gosh. Jones claims he was passing by the town and decided to approach the beauty shop. He asked if she would come out and help him. He told her that he might need a jump and Patrice being the sweet angel woman that she is was happy to oblige. It was then that he forced her into his car and he used a knife to get her to obey his orders. He told her that he'd kill her. If she tried any fuzz, funny business, he says that she was crying. When asked, Jones drew an extremely accurate depiction of the scene, including the interesting and not common way that Patrice parked her car. Jeremy said he took her to a river and threw her off the side of a bridge into Sweetwater Creek, which would have been about 65 miles away from Patrice's salon. Law enforcement went to the scene, of course. They brought cadaver dogs, boats, and search and rescue teams, and they were unable to collect any evidence that indicated that Patrice had ever been there. Bill says that there have been times when someone has made a confession to something that they did not do, either for attention or because of sheer boredom. I mean, do I need to remind you the types of sociopaths that we're dealing with when we talk about these cases? Um... These people are stuck in a cell all day, being interviewed by police, maybe getting some special treatment out of it, like getting McDonald's or something, can be just pure entertainment for them and nothing else. Ultimately, Jeremy Jones recants his confession. Now, while there's no evidence that Jeremy Jones was ever at Saltwater Creek with Patrice, he was able to provide law enforcement with details that would have been almost impossible to know for someone who wasn't there. So did he do it and lie about where he took Patrice's body afterwards? Maybe. Or did he just lie altogether? It is the posture of law enforcement that Jones is still a very strong possibility for being responsible for Patrice's disappearance. On screen text reads December 6, 2005, 20 months after Patrice's disappearance. We now pan over Lebanon Baptist Church, originally built in 1941. Albert Clark, a church member, says that they were in the middle of building the fellowship hall when his friend came over with some lunch and they proceeded to eat their lunch together. While they were eating, they discovered some bur- buzzards flying around and seemed particularly interested with a certain area in the woods, Albert turned to his friend and said, when we're done eating, I'm going to go check out what they're looking at. They finish eating and walk out into the woods, and his friend comments, oh, look, look, it's just a deer. After a beat, his friend asks Albert, uh, what's that right behind you? Albert looks and he sees a skull. He and his friend, of course, call law enforcement right away. Pistol was in his senior year of high school when, over the PA system, he was called down to the principal's office. He says with a chuckle that being called down to the principal's office wasn't all too unusual for him because he had become, at that point, what the school defined as a problem, a.k.a. a child going through some serious emotions and no outlet to properly express themselves, so he had resorted to being defiant. Very normal, but I wish he would have had someone to talk to. It was in the principal's office that his father told him, Pistol, um, we found your mom today. And still not putting it together, Pistol gets really excited and says, Okay, cool. Where is she? Let's go get her. And his dad says, No, son, I'm sorry. I meant that they found her remains today. Poor Pistol. He says it was very hard to focus on anything else for quite a while after being delivered this terrible news. Patrice's dad returns and through tears says she died too soon. Why? We don't know. I'd like to hear her call me on the phone one day and say, Hey Pap, how you doing? But that doesn't ever happen anymore. She's in heaven, enjoying life up there, and maybe one day, if I'm lucky enough, I'll get to go up there and see her. Oh my gosh. Isn't your heart just breaking to hear that? What a sweet dad. I just want to reach through my TV screen and give him a big ol' hug. This made me cry like a little baby as I watched him talk about her. It's certainly a trigger for me when it comes to researching these cases. A dad talking about their baby girl. My heart seriously cannot take it. We learned from Sheriff Mitchell that from the time Patrice disappeared to the time she was found, it had been a total of 600 days on the dot. He had a team assembled within just a few hours. They scoured the ground for any type of evidence that could be found. He instructed his team that from where Patrice was found to the end of the ravine, he wanted it completely cleared to the point where he could see the dirt which meant going through a lot of foliage and twigs. I'm sure it was a lot of hard work, but the sheriff and the team he assembled were very dedicated in their desire to find something, anything. Where Patrice was ultimately found is about 10 miles from her salon. It is extremely rural and remote. It would be incredibly difficult to carry, for lack of a better term, Um, dead weight through this kind of terrain, but we cannot discount that she wasn't walked in there at knife point or gunpoint. At this time, we cannot tell if Patrice walked into the woods on her own volition, or if she was forced to, or if she was carried or dragged to where she was later found. The investigators went through the area for a day and a half, There are 206 bones in the human body, and they left with just slightly less than that. So they were able to recover a lot of um, what they needed. Hey, we haven't talked about Rob in a while. That freaking guy. Should we talk about him for a hot minute? Ugh, if we must. Let's just get it out of the way. When asked if he has any theories on what might have happened to his mother, Pistol says he does indeed have a few theories in mind. He did tell law enforcement that he believes his former stepdad, Rob, is somehow involved. He thinks that Patrice wanting a divorce and Rob's jealousy over not wanting to share her with anyone else would have been all the motive Rob needed. Nancy also told the police that they needed to look into Rob from all that she knew. The fact that Patrice wasn't happy. She said she, had all, she has always thought that Rob had something to do with it. Rob says he has no comment for people who think he killed Patrice because he doesn't talk to those people. I know I didn't do it. Patrice knows I didn't do it, and it's physically impossible time-wise for me to have been involved in it. Plus, I have receipts. So, think what you like. Thanks for the permission, Rob, but I really don't need it. Let's live in Rob world for a moment where perhaps it is physically impossible for you to have committed the act time-wise. But you could have been involved in the planning. You would be shocked how little money you can pay someone to do your dirty work for you. Do you guys remember Tiger King? Joe Exotic was found guilty of paying a hitman only $3,000 to kill Carol Baskin. The price is shockingly cheaper than you'd think. So do you see what I'm saying here, Rob? You could be involved without actually doing the killing part. I'm not saying that he's guilty of the crime, although he's certainly guilty of being in my worst nightmares, but I don't know. I'm getting vibes here. Listeners, are you feeling these vibes too, or is it just me? I just find it very unusual that Rob kept all of his receipts from that day and then he just keeps saying that over and over again. Like, I couldn't have done it. I have receipts. I couldn't have done it. Look at these receipts. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm at the store, I don't even get a receipt unless I'm like going to be reimbursed for work or something. If I do get a receipt, I promptly throw it away because I don't need that kind of clutter and garbage in my life. If I'm ever accused of a crime and I need to provide an alibi, I'd be so screwed. (laughs) They'd be like, what did you do on the 6th of May? And I'd be like, uh... I have literally no idea and no proof as to what I was doing that day. (laughs) Anyway, to me, it's almost like he was saving all of his receipts to possibly create an alibi for himself. Like, see, look, I couldn't have done it. Look at all these receipts showing where I was. Hmm. He continues on his rant that he wouldn't have killed Patrice because he had no motive. There was no life insurance policy out on Patrice because she's only 38. He says, quote, Good job. Nice try. He says that. Good job. Nice try. Can Rob get any worse? But people don't only kill people for money, Rob, and you should know that. Didn't you say you have a degree in criminology? How many cases have we all heard of? A husband who murders his wife simply because if he can't have her, no one can. Good job trying to explain yourself out of a potential motive, Rob. In fact, nice try. Sheriff Mitchell lets us know that Rob Andres has been thoroughly investigated and considering the timeline and the proof that he's provided with his receipts, they don't believe that he's involved. He does add that it doesn't completely eliminate him, but does greatly reduce the chances that he could have done it. I have full confidence and Sheriff Mitchell. I just want that to be said. I really do have full confidence in Sheriff Mitchell. I think if he thought there was any chance Rob was involved, Sheriff Mitchell would be working on it. I really, really like Sheriff Mitchell, and I can't say that about all law enforcement officers in the various cases that we're going to be talking about. Like, remember the cops who worked on the Alonzo Brooks case and last week Ray Rivera's case, but Sheriff Mitchell seems extremely dedicated to solving this case. He always speaks of Patrice and her family so fondly. And so I think he's built a good rapport with them. You know, when you watch true crime documentaries and a sheriff talks about that case, that case, the case they never stop thinking about and the case that they want to solve before their retirement. I like to refer to it as their white whale case. I think for Sheriff Mitchell, This is that case for him. And I know I'm giving Rob a lot of crap in this episode, mostly because his actions and a lot of the things that he says and does are just super off, and sometimes even downright gross, but I truly believe that if Sheriff Mitchell had found any evidence to implicate or indicate that Rob was involved, he would never, ever let Rob off the hook for it. Does that mean I don't think that there is evidence linking Rob to the crime? Not necessarily. But if there is evidence, Sheriff Mitchell hasn't found it yet. Rob's theory of what happened to Patrice is that she was taken by someone that she knew, and that's why the place was not disheveled and messed up. He hints that it could have been more than one person. Then he says, (sighs) then he says, was she kept captive for a while? Was she, I hate to say this, but was she somebody's toy for a while? Ew! This is what I was just talking about. How could you even say such a thing, Rob? Seriously, why are you such a gross weirdo? Sheriff Mitchell tells us that he wants to know what happened in those 13 minutes. I believe him when he says it too. He reminds us that money was missing from the cash register. He asks, was robbery the primary motive? he doubts it. Salons are not known for carrying large amounts of bills. Plus, her wallet was left behind. He wants us to keep in mind that Patrice's salon was in a very heavily populated area, and it was even on Main Street. Lots of people going through would stop and ask for directions or ask about the area, like what, Where are the good restaurants? He says it's possible that the wrong person walked into her salon and found her there alone and took it as an opportunity. He agrees with Tammy from before, the witness who saw something that fateful day, that the blue car is so vital to this case because the blue car was seen at 11:45, right in the middle of that 13 minute window. He asks, if you know anyone with a blue car in the area who seemed a little bit off that day, maybe they came home a little bit late or they had some cuts or scrapes on them and acted extremely unusual. That's a piece of the puzzle that they need to know. It's also important to note that Patrice's one-and-a-half-carat pear-shaped diamond wedding ring with accompanying bands was never recovered. So, you know, if you got that as a gift around that time, you in danger, girl. Sheriff Mitchell continues that, there are aspects of the case that they cannot discuss with us because it is what they refer to as guilty knowledge information, information that only the killer would know. It's extremely important this information doesn't get out because as investigators and law enforcement officers, it's important that they're able to weed out any false confessions from the real one. Okay, hold on to your butts because it's about to get super freaking weird. And if you haven't guessed by now... Rob is absolutely involved in the weirdness cause. I mean, duh. Rob asked the person responsible for taking care of Patrice's remains to reassemble her bones so that he could say his last farewell. He told the person, go ahead, lay her out for me. Rob truly has a way with words, doesn't he? He said he picked up her skeleton, by that he means her skull, and just walked around the room with it for a while, put her head back, kissed it goodbye, and went home. Okay, I'm scared. After he was able to get her ashes returned to him, he slept with her in his bed for a year and a half. He said he cuddled the ashes like a teddy bear. He says with cold satisfaction, yes, I'm very protective of Patrice. I have her and that's a good thing. I don't like the way that he worded that. Anyone else? After he just told us that he is very protective of Patrice, I'm assuming the interview asks if they can see the urn or whatever, because Rob takes us to a storage closet filled with coats and cups, and underneath a bunch of crap, he takes out a beaten up cardboard box with Patrice's ashes inside. It's honestly just a very unsettling scene and it makes me feel icky to watch and even write about. Rob continues that he'd never share these ashes with anybody, especially Pistol. Excuse me, what? Why especially Pistol? When you say that, you're essentially saying that you would rather give Patrice's cremains to a complete stranger over Pistol and I just don't understand the resentment and hospitality hostility that Rob has for him. I understand why Pistol would hate Rob, but I can't for the life of me understand why Rob would hate Pistol so much that he wouldn't allow him to have a single photograph of his mother or allow him the closure that he needs and deserves to say goodbye to his mother. You're a real piece of work, Rob, and not in a good way. Can we be done talking about him now? Oh my gosh, I hate him so so much pistol returns to tell us that it has been 15 years that he has been without his mother so he's been without his mother for as long as he had her he hopes that he can be half the person that she was he says he still feels her spirit and influence in his life he promises to continue to look for closure and some justice for her and that's the end of the episode Anyone with information about the abduction and murder of Patrice Andres is encouraged to call the Georgia Bureau of Investigation tip line at 800-597-8477 or you can always go to unsolved.com and they will pass along the anonymous tip. Before we end, I just want to go over a couple of theories spinning around out there. The three most popular theories on Reddit are... That one, Patrice was killed by her husband in a murder for hire plot, which we've kind of already discussed at length. I also want to throw out there that oftentimes the most obvious answer ends up being the correct one. Just because we don't currently have proof that Rob was involved doesn't mean that we never will. The number two theory is that Patrice was killed by one of the two serial killers that we know were stalking the area at that time. We know that Gary and Jeremy had been in that area previously, so it's not impossible that one of them could actually be involved. I am very convinced that it could have been Jeremy because he knew certain things about the crime and its layout that investigators said would be impossible to know without being there. So I think that he had more guilty knowledge information than they were alluding to in this episode because they didn't want to share that guilty knowledge information with us but I also don't want to rule out Gary because he just seems like an absolute monster who could have done this and not thought about it twice afterward. Um, the third theory is that Patrice knew her killer and that it could have been a client. They didn't really talk about that in the episode, but I just thought it was a little bit interesting. Uh, it's definitely not something that I thought of, but it would certainly account for the way Patrice didn't seem to put up a fight. Perhaps it was a client, someone she felt comfortable around. I don't have a ton of evidence to support this theory, but I definitely think it's an interesting one and it can't be ruled out. Now, what do I think happened? I think it's very interesting that Jeremy just seemed to know so much. Um, he just had so much information. Uh, information not even having to do with the blue car because that's been public knowledge for some time, but information that only the killer would have known. Is it possible that he was cooperating and then was advised by a lawyer to recant? I don't know. As of right now, Jeremy is in prison for life, so we know he's staying put for now. Do I have concrete evidence that directly incriminates Rob? No. No, I do not. Would I be shocked or terribly surprised if sometime in the future he ends up being the one who did it no not one bit surprised do i currently have evidence that points to rob being super creepy yep yep i do patrice seems like she was an absolute diamond of a human being she loved and was loved deeply by all who knew her she made people feel good and beautiful both inside and out We need as many people as we can like her in this world, and it is such a shame that her life was cut short. Guys, this happened 15 years ago. Patrice deserves justice for what happened to her. As this episode was just released, there has not been any update. I will continue to keep an eye on this case and will keep you updated to anything that I find. I made a post on Instagram at mystery Still Unsolved regarding this mystery. If you have any theories that you'd like to share, I would love to hear them. What are your thoughts on Rob? Is he a potential murderer or just your basic run-of-the-mill creep? Do you think it was one of the serial killers known to be in the area at the time? What do you think about the client theory? Do you have any other idea that we didn't even talk about today? Let me know. If you like this episode, please follow me on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved and share with your true crime-loving friends and family. Join me next Tuesday when we'll discover together, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?